Welcome to Redeemer Church. As Paul prayed for the Romans in Romans 15, 13, I so pray this for you. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. My name is Beth. I'm a volunteer here. And we are now in our, how many weeks of the power of hope? Sixth week? Wow. Uh, and Pastor Tim has given us a lot of food for thought, and sometimes it's been really hard for even me to hear. And so, Pastor Tim, what do you have for us this week? So I was out um, kayaking on a lake down in Jackson, Clark Lake outside of Jackson. And um, I was kayaking out to the end of the lake, looking at all the houses, because that's what you do on a lake like that, the houses that you had always dreamed of living in. Maybe someday. Um, at any rate, I was, I was kayaking out, and I got to the end, and I turned around, and I looked back expecting to see everything that I had already saw. But when I turned around and I looked back, everything was different because it was a change of perspective. Everything looked different. It wasn't what I expected it to be. And I, I've thought about that little kayaking excursion many times as I've thought about how God works in our lives in difficult circumstances and how oftentimes we don't really understand God's purpose in something until we get away from it for a while. And that's kind of where we're going to go today in Jeremiah 29.10. We're going to be looking at God's great purpose, and we're going to take a look at the 70 years that the Babylonians spent in exile. And while they didn't really understand why that was going on at the moment, God had some pretty important and pretty significant plans that he was working out. And just like in our lives, we don't often know what God's plan is until it becomes abundantly clear. The Israelites didn't know either. But God has a plan. He has a great plan. And we're going to dive into that in just a few minutes. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, Lord, may they be found acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So there's one thing that us uh, good Christian people are known for. It's, it's uh, for telling people um, that God loves them and that uh, he's got a plan for their lives, even when they're going through really bad situations. After all, um, you know, we read about it in the Bible here and there um, about how God does have a plan for our lives. And, and um, you know, and when we're content, when we're content with our lives and when things are going the way we expect them to, and you know, it's a pretty good fit, you know. God loves us and has great plans for us. But what about those moments when things don't go the way that we expect them to? What happens when the doctor says, I'm sorry, it's cancer? Or a spouse of 26 years out of nowhere decides that it's time for them to not be married anymore? When the boss calls you in and says, I'm sorry, I know it's going to be an inconvenience, but we're going to have to let you go. Or when you find out that after a car accident, your insurance won't cover it. What happens when your best friend decides that she doesn't need you anymore, or that your job search ends in a dead end, or, or, or if you can't make your quarterly tax payments? What if you have an estranged child from the faith, and, and, and you're praying for that child, but all that seems to be happening, happening is his or her heart just keeps getting harder and harder? 
What then? What do we do when, when God doesn't seem to come through for us? How do we keep hope alive when it seems to take all the wrong turns, when our life seems to go all the wrong directions, down dead-end streets, and what if all that we hold dear suddenly is just taken away from us, if, if all of that's familiar just disappears, our friends desert us, our job is gone, our health dissipates, death comes knocking on that unwanted door. Now, the reality is these things happen. They happen all the time to good Christian people, too. It's then that we must face the difficult but undeniable reality that sometimes God's plan is different than we expect it to be. Sometimes God's plan is different than we expect it to be. You know, the Jewish people had a long history of God intervening on their behalf. God will fix it for me. God's going to do this. He's going to fix it. And we read about it all throughout the Old Testament. You know, it happened when Moses led the people out of Egypt, you know, and it happened when God sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness. It happened when they crossed the River Jordan. It happened when the walls came down around Jericho. It happened when they conquered the Promised Land. It happened when Gideon defeated the Midianites. It happened when Samson defeated the Philistines. It happened when Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal. And it happened when David defeated Goliath. It happened when Jehoshaphat defeated the Ammonites. We could go on, but we don't want to, do we? Maybe you do. See me after class. We can. Over and over again, when the children of Israel found themselves in a, just a terrible spot and in, in, in this bad place, they were outnumbered, they were overwhelmed, they had no hope. God literally intervened on their behalf. He came through for them over and over and over again. And it happened so often that the people, they came to believe that God would always always be there for them no matter what. God's going to take care of this. God's got this. After all, they were God's chosen people, and God promised to deliver them. They were so blessed, in fact, that you know, God dwelt in the, te- in the, in the temple, you know, where all these other, all these other tribal um, non-believing groups had their, had their tribal leaders, or they had the idols, and the Israelites had the living presence of God, dwelling in the temple in Jerusalem. The living God, creator of heavens and earth. We're so blessed. Yeah. That's what it must have been like for them. And they were. They were blessed. They were totally blessed. And so they taught their children how blessed they were, and they taught their grandchildren how blessed they were. But here's the deal. Any blessing that's long neglected will soon be eventually lost. Any blessing that's long neglected will eventually be lost and and that part of the story is something is never something that the people of God really took hold of they never really realized that they like the privileges they like the blessing who doesn't but the responsibilities and the warnings never seem to take hold with the people in 605 BC King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came to the gates of the city and and it was as I'll paint the picture for you. It was a dark and stormy night. No, I'm just kidding. But it was a dismal place. It was a a dismal day, a horrible time. The people said, it's okay. God's not going to let us down. God's not going to let this happen to us. He's going to save us. He won't let the Babylonians conquer us. Boy, they they were wrong. Very wrong. So you jump ahead to 597 B.C. and the Babylonians return. 
to Jerusalem. And the people say, God's not going to let them conquer us. He won't let it happen again. We're his chosen people. And no, wrong again. On to 586 BC, and the Babylonians come back yet again, and this time they set siege to the city, intending to starve the people to death, starve them into submission. And inside the city walls, people are they're experiencing fear, and, and they're asking themselves, there's no way. God wouldn't, God wouldn't let them do this a third time. No, no way. Yes, way. <laughs> Three strikes, you're out brings us to Jeremiah 29.10, which contains a particular promise from God to the exiles that are in Babylon. And it says this. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. Now, there are two ways to read this verse, uh, and both of them are, are completely legitimate. They have to, more to do with how we see a scripture. You know, we bring a lot to the text with us. Um, it's called eisegesis, what we put in there. But um, depending on where you are in your life, you'll, you can read this in two different ways. And so if you are anywhere but Babylon, okay, so if, if your life is perfect, which I'm sure all of yours is, um, you might read this and say, oh, yeah, God is good. He's going to bring them back in 70 years. The optimist, right? Because God is good and life is good. But if you are like the rest of us and you're living in some form of proverbial exile in Babylon, your focus will certainly be somewhere else. It would probably be more like, 70 years? Are you kidding me? 70 years. Is this like a mistake, God? Is this like is it some cosmic joke? Surely the God of love and grace and mercy wouldn't make us suffer for 70 blimin' years. That just doesn't make sense. That would mean an entire generation of people would live and die in Babylon. The children would be born, and they might not even live long enough to see the end of it. Now, God wouldn't do something like that, would he? Yes, he would. Yes, he would. And he did. And here's the thing. Not only did he do it, he didn't explain to his people why he did it or how it was going to happen either. They never saw the big picture that God had in mind. But looking back after the passing of, let's say, oh, how long has it been since then? 25 centuries? Give or take a couple of months to today? We can actually see clearly, more clearly, some of what God had intended. Several things that God had in mind when he sent his people into exile for 70 years. And so if you're taking notes today, um, I invite you to pull out the message notes from your worship folder. I'm going to give you seven accomplishments, seven things that God accomplished through the 70 years that they were in exile. Because just like as I was kayaking, you don't see these things until after it's done. Sometimes it takes years. So I'm going to give you the first one. The first is... The grip of idolatry was finally broken after the 70 years. The grip of idolatry was broken. It was this sin more than any other that held Israel in bondage. And this is what they were being judged for because the people of Israel repeatedly broke the first and second commandment. And, and if you don't remember what those are, that's that have no God before thee, 
small G gods, you know, like if you watched the football game last night, maybe, I don't know. It's discouraging. Um, or, you know, and have no, don't worship idols. So God raised up this, this non-believing pagan king, King Nebuchadnezzar, to judge them, and, and he did very severely judge them. And God explains this in Jeremiah 4, 18. He says, your own actions have brought this upon you. This punishment is bitter. It is piercing you to the heart. You see, the, the idolatry of the Israelites was so severe that they had to be quarantined. They had to be taken out, removed from God's people. And so, because they loved their idols so much, they loved their things so much, God put them among a people who actually worshipped idols. The Babylonians were idol worshippers. Their, their form of worship was worshipping idols. And so, they, God would immunize the people by surrounding them with idol worshipers. And it worked. They were tempted while they were there, but the people never again, the people never again succumbed to idol worship. Though idolatry, as a matter of the heart, would always plague the Jews, but all worship was eradicated from the people of Israel. The second thing that these 70 years did was it established a presence among the Babylonians. God established a presence among the Babylonians. So if we look back into the earlier story, remember there's three separate um, attacks on Jerusalem and exiles. There was a man taken during the first attack whose name was Daniel, and you may have heard his story before. Um, Veggie Tales did a really good job with Shad, Shad Matt, Matt, and Benny, something like that and his friends, and Daniel, and, and the lion's den, and that whole story. Um, but Daniel was taken to Babylon during the first exile. And in Daniel's story, we learned that God can use godly people to influence very powerful people in the middle of an overwhelming situation, of all things. And this young Hebrew remained faithful to God while he was in Babylon. And God not only noticed, the king... Nebuchadnezzar also noticed and promoted him to positions of really high authority. And in a way, God established a witness through Daniel among the Babylonians. Today we might call it kind of, if you're a churchy person, they might call it like a pre-evangelism. If you're more millennial in your language, you may say something like a pre-influencer to the community. Um, but you know, Daniel and his friends, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, or their Babylonian names, I can't pronounce their Hebrew names, so I'm not going to try, um, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego gained for themselves respect as those around them could see that they wouldn't compromise what was important to them. And as a result of their courage, Nebuchadnezzar himself noticed and rewarded him, rewarded them, which brings us to our third thing that happened is that God raised up Daniel to a position of great influence. Daniel is raised to a position of great influence. So he gets there at the first deportation, and immediately he and his friends um, drew attention to their captors because of their religious convictions. And if you remember the story, they, they refused to bow down to the idols. They get caught and thrown in the fire. And Later, though, Daniel would interpret Nebuchadnezzar's crazy dream. 
and he became a court advisor to a succession of rulers, all the way uh, to Belshazzar, the final ruler of Babylon, and Darius, the ruler of the Medes. Daniel became to Babylon, came to Babylon as a teenager, and he was there all the way through the 70 years, and when the Jews started going home, he actually stayed in Babylon. And, you know, maybe he was too old to make the trip, I don't know, but it doesn't really matter. In those years that he was there, God used him as a witness for the truth at that heart of that pagan city. So fourth, Nebuchadnezzar becomes a believer because of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar becomes a believer in God. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 4, there's a really cool story about how Nebuchadnezzar goes kind of crazy. Um, he gets really prideful, and he kind of loses his mind, and he, it actually says he spends, I don't know, like seven years out in the fields eating grass like the cows. And Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, read the Bible sometimes. It's full of good stuff. There's my plug. But so Nebuchadnezzar is, he's kind of lost it. And he spends seven years eating grass in the fields. And he finally comes to his senses. And he cries out to God, Daniel's God, and truly repents. And he comes to belief in God. Now, this would not have happened without the influence of Daniel in his life. The fifth thing that we see now, some 2,500 years later, is that the Jews lived in peace in Babylon. It's a matter of historical record that once the Jews were in Babylon, they were treated reasonably well. And yes, they, they got made fun of, sing us one of the songs of Zion, the Psalms say. But um, instead of being persecuted endlessly like, like they were in Egypt, their captors gave them freedom to develop their own community. And if you consider both the Jews in Babylon and those left in Jerusalem, we can see that they made some major significant spiritual gains. For instance, during that 70-year stint, an essential part of the Old Testament was written, which included 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Jeremiah, which we're looking at today, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and part of the Psalms. Those were all written while the Jews were in Babylon during the exile. Not only that, it's, this is also the time where the Jews began to put together the canon of Scripture. The Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, began to get compiled together while they were in exile. They had to. They had to safeguard their beliefs. They had to, this is what we believe. And so they started putting all of these things together. And what we now call the Old Testament, what they would call the Hebrew Bible, started to form during the Babylonian exile. The sixth thing is that Judaism becomes a worldwide religion. And this is important. All of this is leading somewhere. Just stay with me. This period marks the beginning of what we call in the church world the Jewish dispersion. Um, the Jewish dispersion. Because the, the Jews were being spread out because of the exile. Even though the northern ten tribes had already been spread out because of the Assyrian Empire that had destroyed the northern kingdom, it was the destruction of the temple that really marked this change in the culture. The Hebrew faith used to be the centered in Jerusalem. Everything centered there. But when the temple was destroyed, the Jews spread out everywhere, scattered among the nations. And you know what they did when they did that? because there was no temple to go to, they started building synagogues. 
and their communities. Synagogues. The Abayists, the Jewish schools of study that taught the Torah, started to be built in the communities as well. The Babylonian Tamad came from the exile. And over time, the Jews spread to every part of the known world that would become the Roman Empire. And then, 600 years later, as the early Christians began to fan out from Jerusalem with the gospel of Jesus Christ, they went first to the synagogues. Because that was the obvious starting point when spreading this message of the king of the Jews, the Messiah that had come. And you check the record of Paul and Acts. He actually says, in, he, in every city he went to, he started in the synagogue. He had, a, he had a motto, he said, to the Jew first. So he always started in the synagogue. You see, the exile scattered the Jews who became part of God's plan for actually bringing about the gospel six centuries later. Which leads right into the seventh seventh accomplishment that happened through these 70 years of exile. Daniel and his contemporaries introduced biblical prophecy to the educated class. Daniel and his contemporaries introduced biblical prophecy to the educated class. And here's what I mean. We know something like this had to have happened. It's not fully documented in Scripture, but we know it had to have happened because 550 years later after the exile, there were these magi who showed up in Jerusalem. And they showed up and they said, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star in the sky as it rose, and we have come to worship him. If you want to read that story, it's in the very beginning of Matthew. It's very festive, too. That was where the rim shot was. How did they know about the king of the Jews? Someone had to tell them. Eventually, they were used, evidently, they had to be used to looking at the sky to predict the future. And if you go back to the book of Daniel, Daniel frequently mentions the Magi in the Babylonian courts throughout the entire book. Actually, if you go to Daniel 5.11 and look it up, you'll discover that Daniel was actually named the chief Magi and head over all of the priests and spiritual leaders in Babylon. Think about that for a minute. Daniel, a loyal, observant Jew, being promoted over all spiritual leaders in the capital of a foreign empire. Only God could orchestrate something like that. And this doesn't mean that all the Magi became believers, but it does imply that Daniel had a huge influence. Author and pastor John MacArthur uh, explains the connection in this way. He says, and I quote, Daniel was chosen to become chief of the Magi when he demonstrated his superior ability to interpret dreams by the divine coincidence of having a great Hebrew prophet to rule the Magi 600 years before Jesus was born. God was, in effect, setting up the situation so that one day when a baby was born in Bethlehem, some of those Magi would find their way to the house where the baby was so that he could be acknowledged as king. So as we stand here now, and we stand back and we evaluate all of this, we got to ask ourselves, you know, how much of this did the Jews know? And honestly, they didn't know any of it. They probably knew one thing. They probably knew that first thing, and that, that God was punishing them 
That's probably all that they saw. The rest was hidden from their view. Over time, they would come to understand that God had chosen to bless them, even in exile, that God had chosen to bless them. But the long-range plans and purposes of God would not become visible to them at all. They wouldn't see it. And so it is so often for us as well. We serve a transgenerational God, a God who, whose purposes span across the centuries, span across the generations. He doesn't confine himself to our timetable, to our time limit, to our understanding of what he intends to do. And we can only understand now his divine purpose in the exile, those 70 years, because we have the benefit of 2,500 years to think about it. We have 2,500 years of perspective to gain from it. And so if you're in your own Babylon right now, don't judge the end by the beginning. We can't tell right now all that will result from our current troubles in life. And it's unlikely that we will ever fully understand, even years from now, what it'll all mean. Because God is God, and, and he doesn't work on our timetable, and he doesn't obligate himself to explain his purposes to us. Someone once made the uh, analogy that we're like ants crawling across the Rembrandt painting. Have you ever heard that before? We're like ants crawling across the Rembrandt. We crawl across a, a dark brown piece, and we think that all of life is dark brown. And we keep walking, and then we, we hit a piece of green, and we think, oh, great, yay, green, life is green. And then we keep going, and, and then we hit a piece of, of sky blue, and then a splash of yellow, and a streak of red, and then another patch of brown. And, and on our journey from one color to another, we never realize that God has actually painted a masterpiece of our lives using all of the colors of the palette. But one day, we will learn that every color had its place, had a reason, and nothing was wasted Nothing was out of place. See, time is, time is the canvas on which God does his painting, and eternity is the perspective from which we see the beauty of his handiwork. I want to say that again because I really think it's important to hear. Time is the canvas on which God does his painting, and eternity is the perspective from which we see the beauty of his handiwork. History is God's story the slow outworking of his plan across the centuries. And it's so much bigger than you, and it's so much bigger than me, and it can't be comprehended sometimes. All that it contains, we can't understand. And if we focus just on our current troubles, if we just focus on this one thing that's really getting under my skin right now, we're going to end up discouraged, we're going to end up disheartened, confused, we may even get angry, we'll get frustrated, and we're definitely going to get depressed. And many people have done that. Begin to doubt, too. Be tempted to turn away from God. Get so focused on the pain and the suffering of the world around us that it causes us to give up on our faith. I think we probably all know someone who's done that. I just can't get over this thing happening. God didn't fix it, so I don't believe anymore. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that story. It all goes back to whether we're willing to believe, that God, believe what God said in Jeremiah 29.10. If you are a Jew in exile, it's not easy to hear that you're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. 
because that means you're probably going to die there. But on the other hand, God is promising that he's going to bring your children home at last. You see, there is no escape from the pain and the suffering from this world. We live in a broken world. We're broken people. And if you were, in a, if you were a Jew in exile, do you think it would matter if you believed in God or not? Honestly, if you were a Jew in exile, would it matter if you believed in God or not? No. You would still be in exile. It wouldn't change the situation. But daily, you would have to make the choice to either live with hope or not. Are you going to pass that hope on to your children and grandchildren or not? And what you decide truly does matter. So where does it leave us? Unfortunately, it leaves us in the, in the reality that we're all hurting and broken people in one way or another. But we are still living in a broken world, and no one is immune to the suffering. There's no escaping from that reality. But, but, you know this already. We do have a choice. We, there's two choices that we have when we recognize that we are in that place. We can either hurt with God, or hurt without God. If you're here today and you're hurting, and you may feel as if you've come to the end of your ability to endure, I, I pray that you would hang on to God because if you turn away from him now, things are only going to get worse. Pioneer missionary J. Hudson Taylor, who is the founder of the China Inland Mission, wrote in his journal uh, of his spiritual torment, his agony as he was going through one of the most terrible days of the Boxer Rebellion. And he wrote of his heartbreak um, and his spiritual condition in this way. He said, I can't read, I can't think, I can't pray, but I can trust. You see, the reality is, is there are going to be times in our life where we can't read the Bible. There are going to be times when we can't Pray to God. We can't even articulate our words to God because we are so angry, we are so frustrated, we are so upset because of the situation in our life that we are stuck in. And we can't do it anymore. We can't read, we can't think, we can't pray. We can't do anything else, but in those moments we can still trust that God has a loving purpose for us. We can either hurt with God or we can hurt without him. And for those of you who don't, who don't think it's worth to keep believing, I don't have any power to convict you otherwise. But I encourage you, if you have eyes to see beyond your own problems, to look up and you're going to see God's hand working through it all. Because God has a bigger plan, has a bigger picture, and is drawing a masterpiece around your life. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would open our eyes that we may see your truth. Place in our hands that, what we need, that which we need to help free us from the shackles of our lives, the, the bondage of our Babylon. We wait for you, Lord, ready to see what it is you would have us see.
open our eyes and illuminate your path, your, your plan, and give us a peace in our hearts that surpasses all understanding as we place our trust in you to see you through the days that are to come. It's in the name of Jesus the Christ, your Son and our Savior, that we pray. And everyone said, Amen.